Let's open God's Word this morning to the book of Psalms, where we will read Psalm 95 and Psalm 96. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is His also. The sea is His, and He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. And now Psalm 96. O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for He cometh, for He cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with His truth. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of these Psalms and many other passages that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 35. This is found in the back of our songbooks on page 21 after the section of songs. Page 21 in the back of our songbooks. It is the practice of our church to use the Heidelberg Catechism, a Reformed confession of the 16th century, as a teaching tool. And so it is our practice to preach from it each Lord's Day. Lord's Day 35. What doth God require in the second commandment? 
that we in no wise represent God by images, nor worship Him in any other way than He has commanded us in His Word. Are images then not at all to be made? God neither can nor may be represented by any means, but as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. But may not images be tolerated in the church as books to the laity? No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have His people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of His Word. When we look at the second commandment, at least that is when we look at it upon its surface, we might be tempted to think that of the Ten Commandments, at least this one I am able to keep. Because on the surface, the second commandment forbids having any sort of image of God or of some creature that we would use to try to worship our God through. And as God's people, we might be tempted to say, well, we have no images of God in this church. There are no images of God in our home. And therefore, we are blameless when it comes to the second commandment. But that type of thinking would be all wrong. Because there's much more to the second commandment than what we see simply on the surface. Because the more fundamental concept that's in view in the second commandment is the whole idea of our worship of Jehovah God. Certainly, worship is a part of our obedience to the first commandment. For in calling us to have Jehovah as our God, He's calling us to serve Him, to love Him, to fear Him, and that includes worshiping God. But worship is just one aspect of our obedience to the first commandment. And that worship of God comes into focus especially in the second commandment because when God forbids the making and using of an image in order to serve Him, what He's doing is telling us, this is how not to worship Me. So that the second commandment is really all about our right worship of God. And as with every other commandment, there's not only the negative prohibition, thou shalt not do this, but we understand that that always implies the, the positive aspect. What we shall do as God's people out of thankfulness for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And what we're called to do here is to worship God. And to worship God in a very specific way as He commands us in His Word. And it's that positive aspect of the second commandment that we want to focus on this morning as we consider the second commandment using Lord's Day 35 as our guide with our theme being worshiping God as He commands. First, we'll look at what we are to do. Worship Him. Second, how we are to do that as He commands us to. And then the why, the reasons. Worshiping God as He commands. What, how, and why. 
Congregation, imagine that your neighbor or your coworker asked you in this past week, what is it that you do when you go to church? And I hope and trust your answer would be, we worship God. That's why we come to church. But now, that may very well lead to a follow-up question from your neighbor, from your coworker. Well, what is worship? What exactly are, are you doing when you sit there in the pew each Sabbath day? And no doubt, there are many different ways you could answer that question. One very good way to answer it would be to give, to say this, that when we worship God, what we are doing is we are drawing near unto God in order to ascribe to God His proper worth and to extol that worth. Because that's really the definition of worship. Worship is drawing near unto God in order to ascribe to God His proper worth and to extol that worth. And there's really two parts to that definition that we've just given for worship. On the one hand, worship is drawing near into the presence of our God. And we see that when we look at these psalms that we read this morning. Both these psalms show us these, give us, help us to see what is worship. And it includes drawing near unto God. We see that in Psalm 95, verse 2, where the psalmist says, let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. This is a psalm all about worship and the psalmist is saying that part of worship is coming before His presence. We find similar language in Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. So in worship, we are coming into His presence. We're drawing near unto our God. Which might lead one to ask, well, how exactly does that work? Because is not our God omnipresent? Is it not the case that no matter where I go over the whole vast creation, I cannot escape His presence? What do you mean that worship is coming near to God, drawing before His presence? Well, God certainly is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But yet, there is a sense in which we come before Him. We draw near unto Him in worship. And that's true on the one hand because in worship, what we are doing is coming consciously into His presence by faith in Him. But the reality is that He is indeed everywhere present. But what's, the problem is that we are not always conscious of that. We often lose sight of that. We forget that God is Everywhere present. We forget that we are always living before His face from a certain point of view. Well, in worship, what we're doing is we are setting our thoughts upon God. We are entering consciously into His presence by faith. But more than that, we come before Him, we draw near unto Him in worship because God has promised to meet His people in a special way when they gather for worship. And we see that 
symbolized, for example, in the Old Testament. You will remember how when the tabernacle was completed, that that cloud of God's glory came and entered into the tabernacle. And the same thing took place in the days of Solomon when the temple was completed. That glory cloud came and filled the temple. God was saying, when you gather together in this place, I will meet with you in a special way. Yes, I'm omnipresent, but I'm present in a unique way here. That applies in the New Testament. For did not our Savior teach us that where two or three are gathered together in His name that He will be with us? God meets us in a special way when we gather together for worship. So that worship in the first place is drawing near unto Him. Coming before His presence. And What a privilege that is. For of ourselves, we do not have this right. For our God is the thrice holy God of heaven. And we are a sinful and an unholy people. He is the King of all glory. And we are a bunch of spiritual beggars. He is the transcendent One, exalted above all. And we are lowly creatures of the dust. We have no right to draw near unto this God of ourselves. And if we were to try to come in and of ourselves, we would meet with a God who is a consuming fire. But yet we do come. And we come because of our Mediator, Jesus Christ. It's in and through Him that we come on the basis of His saving work. And again, that's what we see in the Old Testament. In the whole layout of the tabernacle and of the temple, if you were an Israelite living in the days of Moses and you walk through the, the doors of the court of the tabernacle, the very first thing that you would see, the thing that would be right there in front of you, would be the altar of sacrifice. That's what's between you, the believer, and the tabernacle or the temple beyond it. And what God was doing in the very layout of the tabernacle and subsequently the temple was showing to His people that there is only one way that you may come near to our God. It's on the basis of the blood of the Lamb of God. It's on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's in and through Him that we come, we draw near unto our God. But worship is more than simply drawing near to our God, entering into His presence by faith. Because the second part of that definition that we gave is that when we come, we do so in order to ascribe to God His proper worth and to extol that worth. We're ascribing to God His proper worth and extolling that worth. And we say that in light of the language that's found in Psalm 96, verses 7 and 8, for example. Psalm 96, verse 7. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. 
This passage is telling us to give to God glory to give to Him strength. And we find almost identical language in Psalm 29. And so we're faced with the question, well, what exactly does that mean? And it cannot mean that we are somehow adding glory to God. It cannot mean that we are somehow adding strength to Him. Because our God is already all-glorious. He is already all-powerful. He has an intrinsic glory, an intrinsic might, so that there's nothing anyone can do to either add or detract from God's glory, to add or detract from His strength. So in the Psalms, when God's Word tells us to give these things to Him, it cannot mean that we're adding them to Him. But instead, the idea has to be that we are to ascribe these things to God. We are to attribute to Him glory and strength. We are to say these things are true about God. And that's what we're doing in worship. God is already glorious. He is already strong. And in worship, we're, we're saying these things are true about You, O God. We're ascribing to Him glory and strength. Just to say, we're ascribing to Him His worth. And I use that term worth very deliberately because God's worth is at the heart and center of worship. That comes out from our English term. That word, worship, comes from an old English term that means worthiness or the, the ascribing of worthiness. In worship, we are saying God is worthy. And we are extolling that worth. We are praising Him accordingly. We are exalting His name. We're giving Him reverence because of that worth. So if your neighbor asks you, what do you do when you go to church? Even if you cannot remember that definition word for word, I trust you can remember the basic idea that we are drawing near to our God, coming before His presence, in order to ascribe, to attribute, to give unto Him His proper worth and to extol that worth, to praise Him for it. And it's important that we do worship Him here at church, that is, it's important that we worship Him in a corporate, public manner. For that's what's in view in these two psalms. What's in view in these two psalms is not private worship of a family or of an individual, but the public worship of a body of believers. And that's evident from the language in the psalm. Psalm 95, verse 1, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The pronouns are plural. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. There's, a, there's more than one person in view here. And really, there's a call to gather together in one place. O come and let us sing unto the Lord. Let's all meet in the, the same location at the same time. That location, at least in the Old Testament, was at the tabernacle and later at the temple. Psalm 96, verse 8 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. 
that has entered into that outer court that surrounded the tabernacle and then later the temple come to the place of worship that God Himself has designated where He has promised to meet with you. Let it be a public gathering. Psalm 96 verse 3, declare His glory among the heathen and His wonders among all people. When you gather together for worship, let it be the case that anyone can see it. Others can observe that you are gathering together to worship God. And let it be that anyone can walk in and join you. What's being described here, what's in view, is what we call corporate public worship. Corporate worship because It's the gathering together of a group of people, specifically a body of believers, and public worship because it's visible to the eye and anyone can join. And we are to gather together for such worship as we've done this Sabbath day morning because this is really the highest expression of worship that we can give to God on this earth. And now in saying that, that in no way detracts or minimizes from other forms of worship that in no way detracts from our family worship when we gather together as a husband and wife and if God has given us children with our children seated around the table to read the Word, to pray, to sing to God. What are we doing? As a family, we are drawing near to God to ascribe unto Him His proper worth and to extol that worth. That's worship. And we can even speak of a a personal and individual worship when we have our own devotions because in our devotions, what are we doing? We're drawing near unto God. We're coming before His presence by faith. And we do so for the purpose of praising this God. And those aspects of the Christian life are crucially important. There's no minimizing family worship or personal worship. But with that qualification in place, we can say, we must say on the basis of God's Word that there's a primacy to corporate public worship. And we say that on the basis of a passage like Psalm 87. Psalm 87, verses 1 and 2, we read this. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. There's a comparison being made here between the gates of Zion and the dwellings of Jacob. The gates of Zion, well, that's, that's a reference to the temple to those gates leading into the the temple, the place for corporate public worship. There's a comparison between that and what's called the dwellings of Jacob. That is the individual homes, the, the tents where God's people live throughout the whole land. And this passage tells us that the Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. And the way we would understand this is that God has a special love for corporate public worship. It's not that He dislikes the dwellings of Jacob. It's not that He's against the... He loves those too. 
And He loves it when the family comes together to worship Him. He loves it when we worship Him as individuals in our own personal devotions. But yet, God's Word itself tells us He loves even more corporate public worship. And that's the case because when we worship God in this way, what we're doing is worshiping Him as a body of believers. For each local congregation is a visible manifestation of the body of Jesus Christ. So that our worship here mirrors the worship that we will give to God in heaven. You read the various passages that describe for us heaven and the worship that takes place there. And I have yet to find one in the Bible that describes an individual worshiping God in heaven. It's always the whole body coming together. That's the worship that's in view when Scripture itself describes for us heaven. And it's gathering together here in this sanctuary as a body of believers that is the closest resemblance to that that we have in this life on this earth. And so Scripture itself emphasizes the primacy of corporate public worship. Do you believe that? That God has a special love for what's taking place right now? There are many who would object to this. There are many who would argue back against the sermon and say, you can't compare the two. You can't say that, that one's more important than the other. I could stay home. I don't need the church. I don't need to be religious. I just need to be spiritual. And as long as I have my relationship with my God, I don't ever need to set foot in the doors of a church. There are many who argue that. But that argument is not in harmony with the Word of God and the clear emphasis that we find in it upon corporate public worship. God Himself tells us His evaluation of it. But now is that our evaluation of it? Is this a priority for us? So that unless God makes it impossible in His providence for us to be here, then our thinking is, I am going to be here. I'm going to do my utmost to be in God's house twice, twice each Sabbath day. Is this such a priority that already Saturday night we're making preparations as it were? So that rather than staying up late doing who knows what, we are getting to bed on time. And before we get to bed, we're doing some good spiritual reading that's going to prime our souls for the next day. Do we view this as one of the most important aspects of the Christian life? May that indeed be our evaluation. So that when we hear the words of Psalm 95, 
verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. When we hear those words, may our response in our hearts be to say the words of Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within Thy gates, O Jerusalem. May it be that we say in our hearts, I'm glad to draw near unto God to come before His presence in order to ascribe to Him His proper worth and to extol that worth. And it's when we have that attitude in our hearts that we will worship God in the right manner too as He commands us to because that's really what's in view in the second commandment. Not so much what we are to do, worship God, but how we are to worship Him. That's the emphasis of the second commandment. For in the second commandment, we're commanded this, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. And what's on the foreground in the second commandment is the negative. Here's how not to worship God. And the negative is not through images. As our catechism instructs us in question answer 96, what doth God require in the second commandment? Well, it begins with this, that we in no wise represent God by images nor worship Him in any other way than He has commanded us in His Word. And we'll come back to that second part, but for now, no images. And what's being forbidden here is not an image of any creature for the sake of having an image of the creature. That comes out in the next question and answer. 97 asks, are images then not at all to be made? Is it wrong to have a, a picture of, of a certain animal? Is it wrong to have a, a statue of a different part of the creation? Well, the answer is God neither can nor may be represented by any means, but as to creatures, though they may be represented, they may be represented if it's simply, I want to have this picture of God's beautiful creation. Nothing wrong with that. What is being forbidden is trying to have an image of God Himself or an image of a creature through which we try to worship God. No images of God Himself. The Catechism says, God neither can nor may be represented by any means. That is, it is forbidden to have any sort of physical representation that we point to and say, that's God. That's what He looks like. That's forbidden. But so also, what is being forbidden is having an image of something else that we know this is not what God looks like, but saying, I'm going to worship God through this. The Catechism has that in view in the last part of answer 97. Yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them, creatures, either in order to worship them or to serve God by them so that what's being forbidden is the classic biblical example of trying to worship God through the golden calf. No images. And that means no mental images either. 
It's not just that we may not try to paint a picture of God or take some marble and and have a sculpture of God, but that we may not even try to paint a picture of Him in our minds. No sculpting an image of Him in our heads. Nor may we have images of our Savior Jesus Christ. And now there are many who would disagree with us on that. There there are many in the church world who would say that, well, Jesus Christ was a real man. And because He became a real man, therefore we may have images of Him. But over against that sort of thinking, we have to recognize who is Jesus Christ as to His person. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son of God. And therefore, this commandment applies to Him no less than it does to the Father or to the Spirit. No images. And the reason this is forbidden is because of the very character of our God. He's Spirit. That's the teaching of John 4, verse 24, which tells us plainly, God is Spirit. That is, there's no physical substance to him. He's not made of any sort of material, and in that connection, he is therefore invisible. That's John 1, verse 18. What is more, this God is incomprehensible. Job 11, verse 7 Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? And those are rhetorical questions. No, God cannot be fully, He cannot be completely known. Job 36, verse 26, Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. That is, we cannot know Him fully. We cannot comprehend Him. We cannot wrap our minds around Him. Because this God is spirit, because He's invisible, because He's incomprehensible, we may not make an image of Him. Because any image of Him is just going to be a guess. And it's going to fall so far short. No image could possibly do justice to who our God is as He's revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. And therefore, any and every image that we might conjure up is really going to dishonor our God. It's going to be degrading to Him. It's going to bring Him low. And that's the the answer to those who would argue, well, we need images though for the sake of the unlearned. It's that argument that the Catechism is addressing in question and answer 98. Question 98, but may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? Now when the Catechism uses that language of books to the laity, to the laity, it is using language from the Roman Catholic Church. That's their argument. The argument of the Roman Catholic Church was we need images for the unlearned, for the illiterate, those who cannot read. If they cannot read, then they have to have something. And so we'll give them pictures. We'll give them images so that they can learn about God and Christ through those images. May they be tolerated For that use, no. The Catechism says no, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God who will have His people taught not by dumb images, 
but by the lively preaching of His Word. We may not have images even as books to the lady because if we go down that road, what we're doing is basically endorsing misconceptions about God. If we try to teach through these images, what they're going to do is give the people a wrong understanding of who our God is. They'll have an inherently low view of who our God is. So no images. That negatively regarding how we are to worship our God. But as with every commandment, the negative implies a positive. And the positive is that we are to worship God as He commands us. And we're drawing that language from answer 96. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images. Now it adds this, nor worship Him in any other way than He has commanded in His Word. And we can take that statement and make it positive and say, how are we to worship God? Well, we are to worship Him as He has commanded us in His Word. And that's really a definition of what we call in Reformed theology the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship is that God regulates, He governs, He controls how we are to worship Him. So that worship is not something we decide for ourselves. We do not take a vote by popular opinion to decide this is how best to worship our God, but God Himself tells us. He gives us clear instructions in His Word. And He has the right to do this because He's God. He's the one being worshipped. So it's His prerogative to say, this is how I want to be worshipped. And as a church, we may only worship Him in the way that He commands us to do so. In other words, it's not sufficient to say, well, Unless it's okay as long as God does not forbid it. As long as there's nothing in Scriptures that says you may not do this, well then we may. No. Instead it must be, it's only if He tells us explicitly, this is how I want you to worship Me. It's only then that we can include something in our worship. That is indeed what's primarily in view when we speak of the regulative principle of worship, it governs the elements of our worship service. The different pieces of the worship service, the different parts of it that make up a worship service, including singing and prayer and the reading of God's Word and preaching and so on. Now this morning, we're not going to take the time to go through each element of our worship service to show the biblical basis for it. We did that last time that we considered Lord's Day 36. Instead, what we want to focus on in the rest of the second point is the heart with which God would have us to worship Him. Because not just make sure you have the right elements, It's go through those elements with a proper heart. And we emphasize this because that's what we see in Psalms 95 and 96. Worshiping God with a proper attitude of the heart which begins with joy and thanksgiving. Psalm 95, verse 1 and 2. Come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a 
joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. So that when we come together as a church on the Sabbath day, we are not supposed to come as though we're coming to a funeral. We are not to come in a cold, lifeless, stoical manner. But with joy. With thanksgiving. Joy knowing the greatness of what our God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. The joy of knowing the forgiveness of sins. Second, the proper attitude of the heart includes humility and reverence. We say that because of Psalm 95, verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. That must be the attitude of our heart so that when we come to church, we may not come with a proud or haughty heart. Nor may we come flippantly as though it's really no big deal to come into the presence of the great God of heaven and earth. But we're to come with humility, with reverence, understanding who we are in and of ourselves as sinful creatures of the dust who have no right to come in and of ourselves. And having a high view of God. An attitude of reverence in our hearts, knowing that He is indeed the God of heaven. We're to come with joy and thanksgiving. We're to come with humility and reverence. And we are to come in the beauty of holiness. That third. That's the language of Psalm 96, verse 9. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We are to come in the right attire. The proper garments. And it's not the outward garments that we're talking about. Although certainly it's it's good and it's appropriate that we dress nicely when we come to worship on the Sabbath day. But that's not what Psalm 96 verse 9 is talking about. It's talking about a heart adorned with godliness. It's talking about that inward clothing. A heart full of devotion and consecration to God. A heart of love so that when we draw near into God's presence, we are to come in the beauty of holiness. Not a sinful heart. Not a superficial heart. Not a hypocritical heart. but one that is sincere, earnest, and pure. That's beautiful to God. Is that how you have come this morning? Is that how I have come? Unless we remember that this is a matter of the heart.
we will convince ourselves that I am blameless with regard to the second commandment. Because on the surface, the second commandment simply seems to forbid worshiping God through an image. And I have no images in my home. There is no images in this church. And as a church, we even have all the right elements of our worship service. So we might think, I am blameless when it comes to the second commandment. But we may not think that way. Our understanding must go deeper when it comes to the second commandment. To see that God wants us more than simply to show up and sit in the pew, but He wants our hearts. And when we come to see that God would have me to worship Him with joy and thanksgiving, with humility and reverence, and in the beauty of holiness, then we're brought to our knees to say, I've sinned. I have not kept this commandment. But the good news of the Gospel is that there is one who has. And that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. For He came into this world to fulfill all righteousness, to live a life of perfect obedience and in keeping and in his keeping of the entirety of God's law that included his keeping of the second commandment for you see the entire life of our savior was a life of drawing near to our God His life was a life of ascribing to God His proper worth and extolling that worth. He did that privately. In His own personal devotions, in His own private worship of God, when He would go up into the mountains to be alone for a while, to pray, to glorify God. He did this publicly. For the Scriptures tell us in Luke 4, verse 16, and He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up, and as His custom was, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It was the custom of Jesus Christ to gather together for corporate public worship. And understand that it was more than just a custom, just a tradition, something He did because this is what we've always done. But understand that Jesus Christ, when He gathered together with God's people, He did so to worship God with joy, with thanksgiving, with humility and reverence, and in the beauty of a perfect holiness. And if you have any doubts about His zeal for worship and the right worship of God, then recall those instances in which He cleansed the temple. Because what He saw taking place was a wrong worship of God. With zeal in His heart, He drove out the buyers and sellers because He wanted God's house to be a house of prayer. He was concerned about a right worship of God. And that characterized every waking moment of His entire life. So that we see from Scripture, Jesus Christ kept the second commandment. All of His days. But more than that, He also took the punishment we deserve for our sins against this commandment. 
For He took upon Himself our heartless worship. And He bore that sin with its corresponding guilt all the way to the cross where He laid down His life, where He paid the debt that we owe for our sins. So that for us, there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. There's no more punishment for us on account of our sins. And what is more, we've been given His perfect obedience as our own. Not just as an example, you have to live according to His pattern, but His obedience has actually been imputed to us. It's been transferred to our account as the basis of our justification so that God might declare to us righteous declare to us that we are righteous. And what's so amazing is that we receive this declaration not on the basis of our right worship of God, but we receive that declaration by grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus alone. And it's knowing this good news that we have that we recognize we have good reason to worship our God. Why do we worship him? Out of thankfulness for our salvation. What worship God? How as he commands us why? Why is first of all because or why is first of all out of thankfulness for his salvation? It's what we see here in the psalm. Psalm 95, verse 1, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. What the psalmist is saying is that just as the people of Israel no doubt sang for joy when the smitten rock poured forth its cooling streams of refreshing waters, So let us rejoice with singing on account of the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ, the one who is smitten, so that from him might flow all of the blessings of salvation for us. Saying, out of thankfulness out of gratitude for what we have in Jesus Christ. Not to try to earn God's favor. Not to try to merit divine blessings. Not to try to win God over to appease Him. But to say, thanks Lord. Thank You for what You've done in and through Jesus Christ. That's why we worship Him. Out of gratitude for our salvation. Which is to say, ultimately, we worship God because He's worthy. And if you want, you can make that a second reason. But they're really joined together. We worship Him because He's worthy. Remember our definition of worship. In worship, we draw near unto God to ascribe to Him His proper worth. And to extol that worth. God is worthy. 
And that's why these psalms call us to worship Him. Both psalms have a similar structure, a similar pattern. There's the call, come let us worship Him. But then there's reasons given. Remember this about God. And remember this. And these are the reasons to worship God. Psalm 95, verse 1, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Verse 2, let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Verse 3, for... Here's the reason. The Lord is a great God and a great King above all God. In His hand are the deep places of the earth and the strength of the hills is His also. The sea is His and He made it in His hands form the dry land. He's the Creator. He's the God of providence. This makes Him worthy of our praise. Same pattern in chapter 96. There's the call. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Verse 3, declare His glory among the heathen. Why? Verse 4, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. He's not like the idol gods of the world who have mouths but cannot speak, who have eyes and cannot see, who have ears but cannot hear. Instead, He's the one true living God. The God of majesty, the God of beauty, the God of glory. He is worthy. And so let us praise Him. And these two psalms are giving us but just a few of the countless reasons that we could give Showing that God is worthy of our worship, both on account of who He is and on account of what He has done. So may God by His Spirit help us to see this. So that from the heart, we draw near to Him, ascribing to Him His proper worth and extolling that worth. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, Thou art worthy to receive all praise, honor, and glory. And with thanksgiving in our hearts for what we have in Jesus Christ, We magnify Thy name as the great God of our salvation. And we pray that Thou will evermore work in us by Thy Spirit so that we do worship Thee all of our days. Not just outwardly, not just externally, but inwardly. With joy and thanksgiving, with reverence and humility, and in the beauty of holiness. Hear our prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.